early in the morning of 14 October 1962, a U.S. Air Force U-2 spy plane flew over western Cuba. Cameras aboard the aircraft took high-resolution photographs confirming the Soviet Union had delivered nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles to the island. Thus began what we now call the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm Oliver North, and in this Gripping War Stories podcast, you'll hear how this near-Holocaust developed and how it was narrowly averted. It's also the story of how Fidel Castro launched a revolution with promises of a better future for the people of Cuba, only to turn the island into a prison for 11 million souls oppressed by a ruthless communist dictatorship. Listen to those who were there describe how Castro committed this ultimate betrayal through a campaign of murder, mayhem, and lies to his countrymen. You'll learn how a Catholic schoolboy who once wrote letters to President Roosevelt rose to command an army of revolutionaries committed to overthrowing Fulencio Batista. And you'll bear witness to Castro's 1959 victorious entrance into the city of Havana from the man who rode beside him. When you hear my interview with Uber Matos, once one of Castro's most trusted commanders, you'll be chilled by his firsthand account of betrayal, torture, and a 20-year imprisonment. In this podcast, you'll meet the brave men who fought for the freedom of Cuba only to be abandoned at the last minute by President John F. Kennedy in the debacle known as the Bay of Pigs. And you'll go inside the Cuban Missile Crisis with eyewitness participants as they describe how a nuclear standoff between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was resolved in just 13 days. From the pilot who flew the mission in a U-2 spy plane, you'll hear him retrace his flight that provided proof the Soviets were installing nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles less than 100 miles from the United States. And listen carefully as ordinary Cuban citizens describe why they had to flee their beloved homeland in search of freedom. Their stories of what they've endured and their hopes for a free Cuba are still relevant. In August 2015, the Obama administration reopened the American embassy in Havana, but human rights abuses continue. And there are now confirmed reports of injuries inflicted on more than 20 U.S. diplomats in Cuba. Fidel is finally gone. He died on 25 November 2016. But the Castro family dictatorship lingers on. By the end of this podcast, you may wonder, as I do, why we should ever trust a despot. If you're hiring, you know that quality hires keep your business moving forward. But you also know it can take a lot of time to find the right candidate for the right job. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job on over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. That's ZipRecruiter.com strive. One more time, get it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com strive. 
I'm Oliver North. This is War Stories, coming to you from Naval Air Station Key West, Florida. Just 90 miles south of here, 11 million people suffer in the Western Hemisphere's last remaining dictatorship, Fidel Castro's Cuba. From the days shortly after Castro seized power, this air base has been crucial to keeping an eye on what's happening in Cuba. In 1962, when nuclear missiles were discovered on the island, hundreds of aircraft launched from this southernmost tip of America as the United States and the Soviet Union teetered on the brink of war. Come with us as we take you inside the confrontation with communist Cuba. Havana in the 1950s. From the Tropicana to the Hotel Nacional, for Americans in search of the ultimate paradise, no place held more allure than the Cuban capital. Havana was a booming city, uh, is and was a beautiful city. Cuban native Dr. Jaime Suchlicki is the director of the Institute for Cuban and Cuban-American Studies at the University of Miami. Nightclubs, gambling, beautiful beaches. So there was all those things that uh, tourists like. The 750-mile-long island boasts 330 sunny days a year. But it was much more than the stomping grounds for rich foreigners and gambling mobsters. Cubans, above all, love their island homeland. I was born in Havana, but my family lived in a small town outside of Havana. As a young girl, Mariana Vina enjoyed her weekly visits to the bustling capital. Havana was exciting. Lots of people all the time. My mother was a teacher and my father worked in the furniture business. Her parents were among the 6.9 million Cubans busy creating one of the most successful economies in Latin America. Cuba in the 1950s probably had the highest standard of living anywhere in Latin America. Professor Victor Trier is the author of numerous books on Cuban history. It went from being one of the poorest countries in the region to being one of the wealthiest within 60 years. It had uh, probably the largest middle class in Latin America. A lot of European shops, but we also had a lot of um, American businesses. It was exciting. In March of 1952, Cuba was rocked by turmoil. Former President Fulgencio Batista seized power in a bloodless coup from a weak but democratically elected President Carlos Prio. Basically, it was thirst for power. He had married a, a younger woman that wanted to be the first lady. Batista stole Cuba's democracy and installed a dictatorship, and people started to protest. Born in 1918, Uber Matos was a school teacher in the town of Manzanilla. He was shocked by the ruthless repression of the Batista regime. Senor Matos, did you know personally anyone who had been jailed or, or worse by Batista? I myself was jailed by him. What crime did he accuse you of? He accused me of signing a proclamation for democracy. I was sent to prison and eventually released but it was nothing compared to what I would go through later in Castro's jail. Batista's corrupt wife, Marta, aspired to be Cuba's Eva Perón. The strong man himself posed as a Democrat, promising a series of elections. But the voting was either racked by fraud or never held. Slowly, you had opposition from student groups. 
It was the student leadership at the University of Havana who began to riot against the regime. Some of the leaders went underground and started terrorism and violence against Batista. They learned to fight with guns. They carried out assassinations. Bombs in theaters started happening. My parents started being very careful about taking me to the city. A lot of those student groups became pseudo-political and pseudo-gangster groups. One of those leaders was a little-known law student named Fidel Castro. Born on August 13, 1926, in Cuba's far eastern province of Oriente, Castro was the illegitimate son of a sugar plantation owner. He had a middle-class uh, background, uh, went to good schools. By 1940, the 14-year-old Castro was already striving for the world stage. Well, he, he wrote a letter to FDR. This is the letter young Fidel sent to the American president. In it, he congratulates Roosevelt on his re-election and asks for a green American $10 bill. And evidently, uh, the president of the United States never answered him, and he never got the bill. To this day, little is known of Fidel's mysterious 1949 trip to the U.S., where he lived in this brownstone in New York's Upper West Side. One thing is clear. On his return to Cuba, he was obsessed with revolution. He, at a very early age, showed a belief in violence and action. And Batista's cruel regime only fueled his fire. By 1953, he was ready to act. His target, the military barracks in Moncada. Castro led a daring but unsuccessful attack, after which the 27-year-old revolutionary landed in prison with a 15-year sentence. But after only a year and a half, prisoner 3859 was set free. Batista felt that, look, we can deal with him. He left jail and went to Mexico to plan a landing in Cuba. He used Mexico as a base of operation to plot against Batista, working very closely with other Cuban exiles. There, Castro welcomed a new recruit, an Argentine revolutionary named Ernesto Che Guevara. Che was an Argentine communist, became a physician. Che Guevara, of course, was exceedingly anti-American. Castro understood Che could be useful as he planned his riskiest adventure yet. Power was the ultimate achievement, and he was willing to take any risk to achieve it. On November 25, 1956, Castro and Che boarded this yacht, the Granma, and set sail for Cuba. The boat was 38 feet long, designed to hold 25 people. But for this mission, 82 were aboard, including Fidel's brother Raul. They traveled this route, sailing through the Gulf of Mexico around the Yucatan Peninsula. After seven days, they approached Cuba from the south, landing on a desolate beach. The Cuban army found out that the boat was arriving, tried to strafe them, killed a few of them. Of the 82 men who landed, only 16 survived, including Fidel, his brother Raul, and Che Guevara. It was the beginning of a 25-month-long campaign. When Castro landed, he was lucky he survived. He and his group managed to escape into the mountains. The Sierra Maestra is a, a series of mountain uh, ranges in, in eastern Cuba, very wooded, uh, very difficult to approach by the military. From his mountain hideout, Castro began a propaganda campaign throughout Cuba sending messages over the radio claiming he'd arrived to liberate the island. He never projected an ideology of trying to destroy Cuban society. The perception was that this was good 
people of Cuba fighting a bad dictatorship in Havana. But the guerrilla leader held a closely guarded secret. Castro's rise to power was a manipulation of the First Order. He promised democracy, but Castro hit a more sinister goal, absolute power. The revolutionary revealed, next on War Stories. After landing in December 1956, 31-year-old Fidel Castro, along with brother Raul and Che Guevara, dug into their hideout in the Sierra Maestra Mountains. They were determined to build a rebel army and wrest power from strongman Fulencio Batista. Batista didn't regard this group as a serious threat. Here is a small group or band of revolutionaries in the mountains trying to fight an army of 10, 15,000 men. Though outmanned and outgunned, Castro understood he could fight this war a different way. From the point of view of the most of the Cuban people, this was not seen as a communist revolution. He really presented himself as this romantic, selfless leader whose cause was to restore democracy in Cuba. It was, in, its, in the truest sense, a propaganda war, and therefore a psychological war. And the psychological war was working. What brought Castro to power was Cuba's middle class. There was a, a, a group of people that were um, against Batista. My aunt was very involved with them, sending food and medicine. I was determined to fight for the freedom of Cuba. Early in 1958, 40-year-old school teacher Uber Matos joined the cause. His first mission? To make a daring flight in a twin-engine C-47 full of weapons from Costa Rica. Uber Matos landed a plane full of equipment in near the Sierra Maestra to support Fidel. Did you meet him that night when he came back? Yes, Fidel embraced and thanked me. Before I knew it, we were arguing. This is footage of Uber Matos standing next to Fidel in the Sierra Maestra. He told me I had to return to Costa Rica for more weapons. I said I wanted to stay here and fight. He reminded me he was in charge. Uber Matos became a very brave commander and was one of the principal leaders of the uh, guerrillas. So gradually this movement began to grow. The army was falling apart, was defecting toward the Castro uh, group. But by 1958, it estimated about a thousand guerrillas fighting in the mountains against an army not prepared to fight. In December 1958, two weeks before Batista fell, the ranks had swelled to around 3,000. The groundswell was unstoppable. Though Castro still remained in his mountain base, Batista and his wife realized their days were numbered. Batista made a speech. He said he was leaving. There were some planes waiting. He carried his uh, suitcases full of money and jewels and ran away from Cuba. Castro began to leave the mountains. He took nearly a week to get to Havana because he made sure there's going to be this victory procession. The sound and sights of Castro's entrance into Havana. Our victory column reached Havana on January 8th. As seen in this picture of Castro entering the capital, he was flanked by his two most trusted commanders, Camillo Senfuego and Uber Matos. Castro wanted Camilo and I to enter Havana first and enter as his bodyguards. I remember people going crazy and celebrating. Havana native Anthony Guernica remembers that day. It was uh, 
a tremendous moment. My family sat in front of the TV all day long and all night long. I took a picture of Fidel with a pigeon on his shoulder through the TV set. There was a, you know, a mood of jubilation. I was, I was right in there with everybody else. I was gung ho for Mr. Castro. The initial uh, objectives of Castro was to consolidate power. There were public trials, but initially there were a number of people that were executed. World public opinion was uh, shocked by the executions. And almost from the get-go, you begin to see serious communist indoctrination of the armed forces. I saw that Che Guevara started to have a close relationship with the army and Castro was becoming more powerful and more of a communist dictator. The Cubans now saw their new leader was anything but a liberator. Uber Matos heard it firsthand. He told me we can't give the people economic liberty if we want to keep a grip on them. Otherwise, they'll think they're free. Did you feel betrayed by what he said? I was worried and wondered where does this man want to take us? He started to confiscate businesses, and my father lost his business. I think we were wrong about this guy. How can you be one day with one belief, and immediately thereafter, you're being told a totally different story? Within the, the, the first year, I was, I was turned completely against him. One person I read called Cuba's middle class the disposable rocket booster for the communist rocket. Castro used the middle class to get into power, and once he didn't need them anymore, just disposed that rocket booster. Matos could no longer serve the lies of Castro's revolution. At what point do you think Castro decided to have you arrested? When he knew that I planned to resign from his government. 21 October 1959. Just nine months after riding into Havana together, Castro sent Ubermato's comrade-in-arms, Camilo Sinfuego, to make the arrest. He felt ashamed. He told me, I can't believe I'm doing this. Several weeks later, there was a show trial. Fidel accused me of being a traitor to the revolution. Matos was sentenced to 15 years in prison, but he'd end up serving almost 20 years of brutal incarceration. Why do you suppose he didn't kill you? I believe he thought that all the torture and broken bones would force me to give in to him. While isolated in Castro's dungeons, Ubermatos recalled with grim regret what Fidel had said to him the day he took power. He told me that if something were to happen to him and Raul, I would be in charge of leading the revolution. Castro was afraid something was going to happen to him. It's a shame what Castro feared never happened. President Eisenhower orders the CIA to help the Cuban people liberate their homeland. But his young successor has second thoughts. The Bay of Pigs is next. He was clear in his mind that he didn't like Cuban society as it existed, and he wanted an anti-American revolution. Despite calling Americans imperialist aggressors, it didn't stop Castro from traveling to New York and Washington in 1959. Surrounded by cameras, his goal was to whip up political support for his revolution. 
While in the nation's capital, he even met with President Eisenhower's vice president, Richard Nixon. One of the great myths of the Cuban Revolution is that somehow Washington pushed Castro into the arms of Moscow. Well, the United States was, in fact, trying to reach some sort of an accommodation with Castro. But Castro, by this time, was delivering anti-American speeches on a regular basis. The Soviets saw an opportunity to begin to penetrate Cuban society. October 1959, KGB agents poured into Havana, and on February 10, 1960, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev sent Politburo member Anastas Mikoyan on a mission to Cuba. There were Russian advisors all over Havana. Anywhere you turn, you can see a Russian face. It accelerates as Fidel Castro began to nationalize and confiscate American and Cuban properties. Washington was increasingly alarmed. And it's at that point that Eisenhower finally gave the green light to the CIA to proceed with planning to overthrow the Castro government. The CIA and the Department of Defense were recruiting and training Cubans to either land on an invasion or do commando attacks against the the Castro regime. I found out uh, that they had a recruiting center in one of the houses here in Miami. 19-year-old Felix Rodriguez immediately joined the movement. I signed up. I volunteered for it. Did you know that the CIA was behind it? No, we didn't even know the CIA existed at the time. Stepping up to volunteer was nothing new to then 54-year-old Manuel Perez Garcia. In World War II, as an army paratrooper, he'd fought at Guadalcanal. And all the Americans died for me. And I told him, I'm from the Cuban army. I am a soldier. I want to help you. Five years later, together with his son George, Manuel served in Korea. He came home to New York. But George was killed in action. So you, you joined the brigade... Yeah, in 1961. As it was forming up to throw Castro out. Well, I am a paratrooper. And what I do? The movement united men who had a common bond, an intense dislike for Castro and communism. I saw Castro in TV. I said, that guy, I don't like it. That guy looked like a communist. That was enough for 18-year-old Juan Gonzalez to join the movement. I told my, my wife in that time, I think we got to fight against Castro. What did you think was the goal of this force? The goal was to get rid of Castro and establish a democracy in our country. We were preparing to create a guerrilla warfare in the mountain, strong enough to be able to support a provisional government. In late 1960, the CIA sent the men to Guatemala for months of rigorous training. While they were there, the U.S. inaugurated a new president. John Kennedy's closest advisor was his brother Robert. The young president appointed him attorney general. Kennedy inherited the Bay of Pigs planning, and he didn't like it because it exposed the U.S. hand too much. While Kennedy waffled, Felix infiltrated into Cuba. He arrived February 1961. He couldn't know that from the earliest days of the Kennedy administration, the president and his brother were unsure of the operation. By the time the infiltration groups went in, The planet started to change. And they decided to continue with the operation, but with a different concept. It was a a dark moment in American foreign policy. Under cover of darkness, the brigade comes ashore at the Bay of Pigs. But JFK's change of plan spells disaster for the freedom fighters. That's just ahead on War Stories. April 1961, 
As the Cold War heated up, President John Kennedy remained indecisive about the joint CIA-Pentagon operation to remove Fidel Castro. The plan called for a landing of Cuban exiles, now named Brigade 2506, supported by covert U.S. assistance. Kennedy didn't want the invasion to be too close to Havana because he was fearful of the press. Professor Timothy Naftali is the author of One Hell of a Gamble. This untested new president wanted a perfect scenario, a covert operation that was deniable. He changed the original plans for the landing of the invasion in a city called Trinidad and decided to do it at the Bay of Pigs location. The remote swamp area was 100 miles from Havana. Kennedy thought it the perfect location to conceal American involvement. But Felix Rodriguez and the other 34 men already hiding underground in Cuba were never told of the new plan. But as D-Day approached, the president changed more than just the landing site. April 1961, phase one of the three-day operation. American B-26 aircraft piloted by Cuban exiles took off from Central America. Their mission? Bomb Castro's airfields to destroy his air power. In Havana, 18-year-old Anthony Guernica was rocked by the blasts. I was getting ready to go to school, and uh, it was like thunder. Back in Washington, JFK watched the operation unfold. As seen in this notepad from the president's desk, he was clearly on edge. And the president realized, my goodness, I can't keep this secret. I'm just going to wash my hands of this operation. Kennedy canceled the full air support for the brigade. The air was controlled not by the exiles, but by the remnants of Cuba's uh, Air Force. 6 a.m., 17 April, phase two of the operation. 1,300 men of Brigade 2506 slogged ashore. Our boats came here into the Bay of Pigs, landed here, secure or of this terrain. If we control the air, establish a provisional government, and then from there, after recognize, take over the rest of Cuba. But the brigade was unaware of JFK's last-minute changes. The brigade begins to land in the middle of the night. They begin to um, engage Castro's forces. Following the landing, 200 paratroopers jumped into Cuba. Their mission? Seize key positions in from the coast. Juan Gonzalez parachuted from 600 feet into dense jungle. All the paratroopers are landing, jumping in front to stop it. The enemy. But disaster was just around the corner. Juan was shocked to see a column of Castro's army advancing toward him. So my chief in command said, how many? I said, 30 or 40. He said, oh, they're coming to surrender. I said, no, 30 or 40,000 are coming over here. I said, oh, God. The canceled air support doomed the brigade. 104 of them were killed. Eventually, they ran out of ammunition. They began to retreat slowly. There were a lot of mistakes made by those who were handling the invasion. Hiding in Havana, Felix Rodriguez waited to join up with the brigade. How do you learn that the Bay of Pigs operation is a failure? We started looking at the television. We started seeing a lot of my friends being captured. And that day, I cried. Felix hid from Castro's secret police for five and a half months, where he arranged to secretly return to Florida. Juan Gonzalez and the other 1,189 captured men of the brigade were put on trial. War stories tracked down this rear photograph of Juan Gonzalez in Castro's court. They were all sentenced to 30 years in prison. Castro himself came to see the captives. Castro went to the prison to see him. He told me, hey, you think you never die? 
I will kill you. Castro proclaimed the victory against American imperialism, arrested thousands of oppositionists, executed a number of people. This was the major consolidation of Fidel Castro. But with JFK's support, the CIA began a highly secret and to this day controversial project to get rid of Castro. The strange ideas included an exploding conch shell as a gift. Another scheme, a wetsuit that would poison Castro while scuba diving. The ideas, however, remained only on the drawing board. Meanwhile, communism was infecting the whole island of Cuba. You begin to see the revolution's youth organizations being militant, very pro-communist. I told my father, if you don't let me go, I'm going to go, because I cannot be here. I got into that Pan Am flight. All the people were leaving the country for good. There, there wasn't any, anybody in that flight that was going back. They were among the millions that began to flee Cuba by sea and air in a mass exodus from communism. The Soviet Union saw the U.S. failure to act decisively in the Bay of Pigs invasion as an invitation to do more in Cuba. Khrushchev became more aggressive. In June of 1961, when there was a summit meeting between Khrushchev and Kennedy in Vienna, and Kennedy was apologetic about the Bay of Pigs, and it is coming out of that meeting that the Soviets decide to introduce nuclear missiles in Cuba. Castro says, I'll take the missiles, um, and then sends his brother, Raul, to Moscow to hammer out the details. The KGB works up a very elaborate uh, disinformation campaign. There are going to be 140 shipments from the Soviet Union to Cuba. The Americans are going to notice this. And they did. Navy reconnaissance planes quickly detected the Soviet ships headed for Cuba. But after the Bay of Pigs disaster, the U.S. wanted hard evidence of what they had aboard. The CIA gets permission to fly more U-2s. They needed to be able to prove to the world that it was the Russians were building the sites. That job fell to Richard Heiser of Apalachicola, Florida. At 35, the Air Force pilot began flying CIA missions to find photographic proof of Soviet missiles in Cuba. Heiser was no stranger to the destructive power of nuclear weapons. He had been at Bikini Lagoon on 1 March 1954. And I was allowed to fly on the day they set off the bomb. As he piloted the U-2 at high altitude over Cuba, Heiser could remember what he'd seen at Bikini. If hundreds of them were detonated all over the world. It'd make Swiss cheese out of the earth. U-2 pilot Richard Heiser finds hard evidence the Soviets are putting nuclear weapons in Cuba. See the photographs that shook the world next on War Stories. By August of 62, Soviet ships were pouring into Cuba, secretly carrying massive amounts of military hardware. Khrushchev and Castro were hell-bent on a massive arms buildup just 90 miles from America's shores. Kennedy's people are watching. The Soviets were always shipping uh, military equipment in crates. They began to photograph them at sea. Dino Brugioni was a senior analyst at NPIC, the National Photographic Interpretation Center. He studied the reconnaissance photographs of the Soviet ships for the CIA. We had a big handbook of all the crates that the Soviets had employed. We could measure the crates and determine what was in them. There's a Komar guided missile 
boat in that, in that crate. Because of the alarming number of shipments, the CIA ordered new U-2 flights over Cuba. And on August 29th, a U-2 flight discovers a bunch of surfaced air missile sites. Which is the first photograph of this whole thing? This is it right here. These are SA-2? SA-2 surfaced air guided missile. And here's the site complete. Here you see the missiles and you see the large revetment. Dino used a secret weapon to interpret the photographs. I have uh, Penkovsky's materials. Oleg Penkovsky was a high-ranking KGB major who despised the Soviet system. And in April 1961, Penkovsky began to pass high-priority Soviet military secrets, including details of their missile systems, to his handlers in the West. He had all these information about the various systems, and he would photograph them. Back at the White House, President Kennedy was shown definitive proof that the Soviets had deployed defensive SA-2s in Cuba. And on September the 4th, he issued a warning to the Russians the greatest of issues would arise if offensive materials were sent to Cuba. The Kremlin was unmoved. Khrushchev still regarded Kennedy as weak. So in September, he decides to make the situation much more dangerous. Khrushchev contacts the Ministry of Defense, says, can you get me nuclear weapons there sooner? The defense ministry said, we can put them on ships and they'll be there by, by October. The United States begins to get reports from defectors coming to Florida that there were strange movements or boxes. My father had a small farm outside of Havana. We saw the hills being tunneled for what we believed it was silos. Finally, there's presidential approval for a flight that would go over the western part of the island. October 14th, Edwards Air Force Base, California. U-2 pilot Richard Heiser was briefed on his new mission. My task was to fly over that area and get pictures. Alone in the sky at 70,000 feet, Heiser flew this route. After passing through the Gulf of Mexico, he approached Cuba and flew north directly over the island. This camera was probably 500 pounds. It uh, carried well over a mile of film. It was only about a 10-minute run across the island. And as soon as I landed, they got the film out and flew that straight to Enpik uh, in Washington. And this is what we saw. We saw eight missiles. They're 65 feet long. This is not a surface-to-air missile. Much too big. This doesn't belong in this area. The U.S. now had definitive proof that Khrushchev had placed offensive medium-range ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads in Cuba. The president, sick and weakened from his ongoing battle with Addison's disease, now faced his most serious crisis, the possibility of nuclear war. What happens then is for six days, the United States government does something that it rarely does. It met in secret. Kennedy's executive committee considered different responses to this Soviet nuclear provocation. On October 21st, uh, the president uh, decides that the quarantine is the way he's going to go. October 22nd, eight days after Richard Heiser's U-2 flight, Kennedy prepared to reveal to the nation and the world that we knew the Soviets had nuclear missiles in Cuba. 
In Moscow, it was well past midnight. Inside the Kremlin, Khrushchev and the Soviet military waited uneasily for JFK's speech. Khrushchev is the hawk, and he says, look, we can't lose Cuba. He turns to his colleagues and says, this might, however, end up in a big war. The U.S. and the Soviets prepare for war, and our armed forces, including this naval air station, go on high alert. That's just ahead on War Stories. Unmistakable evidence has established the fact that a series of offensive missile sites is now in preparation on that imprisoned island. 22 October 1961, President John Kennedy told a tense nation about the Soviet nuclear threat just 90 miles from America's shores. As he spoke, the U.S. Navy was on high alert. I recall stopping in the wardroom to watch the beginning of the Kennedy speech. Additional sites not yet completed appear to be designed for intermediate-range ballistic missiles. The president ordered a quarantine of Cuba. Well, we knew that if there was a quarantine, the U.S. Navy was going to have to do it. 23-year-old Ensign Peter Hooktausen from Seymour, Indiana, was a communications officer on the USS Blandy the night JFK spoke. After the speech, the Blandy immediately set sail from Newport, Rhode Island. Our orders were to challenge Soviet merchant ships heading towards Cuba. Navy Task Force 136 included over 200 ships. The ships of the task force took positions in a 500-mile arc around the island. By 10 a.m., 24 October, just a day and a half after JFK's speech, Cuba was effectively cut off. Nationwide, our military went to the highest level of alert. Air Force pilot Richard Heiser saw the buildup firsthand. They had put so much army into Florida. We were deploying aircraft into forward bases in Key West. The Air Force was sending fighters. I thought Florida was going to sink. On the high seas, the destroyer Blandy was tasked with finding Soviet foxtrots. Those are Project 651 diesel submarines sent by Moscow to protect the shipments. Those foxtrots had 22 torpedoes, one of which was nuclear-tipped. Our primary mission was to, to find and to kill submarines. We were also horrified to learn later their rules of engagement allowed the commanding officer of those submarines to fire those nuclear-tipped torpedoes without Moscow's permission. The Kennedy brothers begin to wonder whether there's some way to negotiate out of this. And Khrushchev would give them that opportunity. For three days, the telegraph connections between Washington and Moscow hummed with traffic. Khrushchev finally agreed to negotiate. So on October 25th, he sends an, an urgent, emotional, passionate letter to John F. Kennedy saying, the knot is being pulled by both sides, and it's about to break. Meanwhile, back in Havana... Castro has not played a role at all in these negotiations. Moscow has cut him out like some servant. He meets the Soviet ambassador to Cuba, and they spend the night together, drinking beer and eating sausages. Smoking cigars. And, of course, smoking cigars. And Castro says, I have to write a letter to Khrushchev. He sends a telegram calling upon Khrushchev to launch the missiles from Cuba if the United States launches an invasion. Fidel Castro was willing to cause a nuclear holocaust in order to, to protect himself. 27 October 1962, the tension in Washington was pervasive. 
That morning, Dino Brugioni analyzed the latest U-2 photographs. All missile sites are operational, meaning that within six to eight hours, there could be missiles coming to the United States. The president ordered low-altitude reconnaissance flights over Cuba. And their low-altitude planes are Navy and Marine reconnaissance aircraft. Navy, Marine, and Air Force. They're reporting they're getting shot at. And these are Cubans uh, running to their uh, to the anti-aircraft uh, site, and they're firing at uh, low-altitude pilots. And about noon, we get word that one of our U-2s is late. Eleven pilots, including Richard Heiser, were flying the dangerous high-altitude missions over the island. On the morning of 27 October, Air Force pilot Rudolf Anderson's U-2 was hit by a Soviet SA-2 anti-aircraft missile. Major Anderson was the only American killed in action during the crisis. The situation was just getting out of control. The United States prepared for war. What happens in Moscow? Khrushchev begins to lose his nerve. And in a secret meeting with his colleagues, he says, look, we made them scared. Now let's think about a way of getting out of this. The White House demanded the Soviets remove the missiles from Cuba. Eventually, the Soviets accepted uh, the removal of the missiles in exchange for a U.S. pledge not to invade Cuba. He announces on October 28th that he accepts the concession. The fury in Havana is hard to exaggerate. What's the outcome of the Cuban Missile Crisis? It scares the Soviet leadership and kills Khrushchev's policy of nuclear bluff, which was the most dangerous policy followed by any leader in the Cold War. These are low-level reconnaissance photographs proving that Moscow is dismantling the medium-range ballistic missiles in Cuba. But Soviet subs with nuclear weapons aboard still prowled off the U.S. East Coast. And our mission didn't change. I mean, if they had been attacked, their orders were to return an attack. Though officially the crisis was over, the Blandy continued its pursuit of a Soviet Foxtrot submarine. They did shake us once in a while. We'd lose contact, but we always managed to gain it. And eventually forced the submarine to the surface. I looked out, and there the, the sail of the submarine broke the surface for the first time. And I just froze, and I remember saying it was like seeing a sea monster coming out of the depths. Khrushchev gambled, and he lost. More war stories from Naval Air Station Key West coming up. Don't go away. Fidel Castro and his brother Raul continue to rule Cuba with an iron fist, and well over a million Cubans have fled to the U.S. seeking freedom. The man Castro betrayed, Uber Matos, lives free in Miami and still fights for Cuba's democracy. And for the 1,189 men abandoned at the Bay of Pigs, including Juan Gonzalez and Manuel Perez Garcia, it took 20 months and $53 million to buy their freedom from Castro. Together with Felix Rodriguez at their museum in Miami, they are surrounded by their fallen brethren. Is this flag still an inspiration to Cubans who look to a free Cuba? Oh, absolutely. And we plan to bring it back to the free Havana. After President Ronald Reagan challenged Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall, communist regimes collapsed around the globe. Sadly, it still keeps people in chains in a handful of countries. Today, Cuba is the only dictatorship remaining in the Western Hemisphere. The island's moment of liberty may not be far off. 
the spark of freedom is still alive in the hearts and minds of the Cuban people and with Americans who advance the cause of democracy. Theirs is a war story that deserves to be told. I'm Oliver North. Good night. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.